city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Mark Twain once said, When I was younger, I could remember anything, whether it happened or not. What he said in jest over 100 years ago, our guest today has a lot to say about just how true that is. Welcome to today's show on the psychology and forensics of memory. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a clinical and forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host on Thread of Evidence. I'd like to welcome Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, today's guest. Dr. Elizabeth Loftus is a distinguished professor at the University of California in Irvine. Her research has focused on human memory, eyewitness testimony, and courtroom procedure. She has been an expert witness or consultant in hundreds of cases, including some very well-known cases like the McMartin Preschool Molestation Case, the Hillside Strangler, the Menendez Brothers, and the Oklahoma Bombing Case. Welcome to the show, Dr. Loftus. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Loftus, off the top of your head, what is the case that stands out to you the most? Oh, gee, you know, that's a really hard question. I There's so many cases that I've worked on, some involving very famous people and, and some involving people that you've never heard of. And I guess when I was giving a TED Talk, I had to think about, well, which one case would I would I like to tell the TED audience about? And I chose a case of a man named Steve Titus, who was this ordinary, you know, guy, restaurant manager, engaged to be married, when suddenly he found himself accused of raping a woman who had been hitchhiking. And he was convicted, but he turned out to be innocent. It was a mistaken identification, a faulty memory, and, you know, maybe some other bad procedures that led to this tragedy. And he ended up suing the people who put him in that situation. But before he could get his day in court, he died of a heart attack, a stress-related heart attack at the age of 35. So that's just one that kind of sticks with me, probably because of that tragic ending. So what happened in terms of how did faulty memory impact this trial? Well, the, you know, Steve Titus was stopped because his car kind of resembled the, you know, the car that the rape victim had described. And then there was an attempt to make an identification and her initial identification was somewhat tentative. She said something like this one looks like the closest. But by the time the trial, the criminal trial comes around, this victim was positive it was him. And I think that she had been you know, fed some information that just strengthened her confidence and made her a very, very compelling uh, witness and the jury convicted him. And that's a kind of thing that's kind of common where witnesses may be very tentative at first, but then they get some feedback from the investigators or whoever, and they end up with this artificially inflated confidence that, you know, wins the day in court. Now, does it, do you see it as an intentional kind of strategy on the part of the investigator? Or what, what, what is the process that you think kind of takes hold here? No, I don't. I, I mean, I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to these investigators, to the law enforcement, to the prosecutors. Uh, sure, they want to see the case solved. But when 
you know, they have a suspect in mind or a hypothesis about what happened, they often communicate that information to the person that they're interviewing. And so when the when the eyewitness makes a tentative identification of the person who is the suspect, sometimes the police will say, good job, or, you know, that's who we think it is. And sometimes, you know, the victim or witness wants to know and says, how'd I do? And they get this feedback, which has these negative side effects. You know, it's interesting. I was involved as an expert witness recently in a case. And what I did notice was that the testimony that was given, not even testimony, but the information given in the initial investigative interviews really varied dramatically and changed over time and over the course of the year or two that, you know, led up to the trial. So it does seem like this is a pretty common thing that happens. It is common that the testimony changes and you have to ask why. You know, sometimes there's just forgetting and people said something early on and then they they forgot about those details. That's something that can happen. But a major reason why somebody's testimony changes from point one to point two is that they've been given some new information of some sort or they themselves have drawn inferences about what they think probably happened or might have happened. And those inferences and thoughts can crystallize and start to feel like memories. You know, I'm wondering what you think in terms of a jury, because I would imagine a jury is going to hear, okay, two years ago, three years ago, in the initial investigative interview, this person said A, and now this person is saying B. And do you see any patterns in terms of juries being more influenced by one or the other? Well, you know, often what influences a jury is what the person says in front of the jury. And if they are describing, telling a story and describing it with a lot of confidence and a lot of detail and some emotion, then it's often very persuasive to a jury. And yeah, the defense in these cases can try to point out, you know, gee, when you first started telling this story, you know, you were a lot less confident and you were a lot less detailed and they can try to convince the jury that, you know, maybe that the current story has been exaggerated and bolstered. But it's a challenge for attorneys who are representing clients in that kind of a situation. I can see how it certainly would be. And so how would your research influence a case like this? What would be your role? Well, usually when I get involved as an expert witness, I'm I'm looking to see, are there factors in this situation that are known to create problems for accurate memory? I mean, was there a particularly long passage of time before the person first came forward? Was there evidence of a lot of suggestive information, biased media coverage if it's a high publicity case, or suggestive questioning if you had an investigator who had an agenda and then, you know, isn't an identification of a suspect? Well, how was that identification done? Was the test fair? Were the instructions fair? You know, there, there are lots of things to look at. And to the extent that you have a pylon of problematic factors, then maybe you want to trust the memory a little less. So what would you say fair? Was the identification process fair? What would be best practices that would minimize the likelihood of these kind of things occurring? Oh, there are, well, you know, psychologists have come together with uh, members of the legal profession, law enforcement, and so on. And there have been groups that have identified what some of those best practices are. I'm just going to give you a few examples. Probably the most important thing is who is conducting that identification test? 
because good practices suggest that the person who conducts the test should not know who the suspect is. I mean, we call that a blind testing or even sometimes it's called double blind testing. The investigator doesn't know. And why is that important? It's important because that means the investigator can't inadvertently cue the witness to who the police suspect is, and they can't give feedback. They can't say good job or that's our suspect or that's the person who, you know, we've you know, was seen in the area, you know, at the time of the crime. They can't give that feedback because they don't know who the suspect is. So that that's one example of strongly suggested best practice. Now there's some others. So what kind of instruction do you give to a witness? The best practice suggests that you say something like this. The perpetrator may or may not be in this lineup. It's just as important to exonerate the innocent as to identify the guilty person. What you're trying to do with this kind of instruction is reduce the pressure on the witness or victim to pick someone, anyone, just to see the crime solved. So that's another example of what might be considered a best practice. Those are so interesting because I would imagine that they don't happen very often. The practices? Yes. Yeah, the good. Well, you know, more and more, uh, you know, with one of my former graduate students, you know, we have a paper that we're working on right now about how common were these practices in police agencies across the United States. And, you know, maybe, you know, five years ago, lots of agencies were not doing double blind testing, not particularly interested in the instruction or documenting the confidence at the time. More and more, we're seeing some of these agencies adopt these practices because of the you know, prevalence of wrongful convictions that have been exposed, especially with DNA testing, and the large compensation that has been paid to these individuals, deservedly so, for spending years in prison for crimes they didn't do. And they got there because of faulty memory. Yeah. And, you know, when I say that, it's not that I think there was ever a big conspiracy, but just when you think about how law enforcement tends to work, I mean, a person's assigned a case and works that case from beginning to end, ideally. And so it would be understandable if this person is involved in all the investigation that they would be the person who'd be putting together the lineup and explaining instructions and those kind of things. Right. But, you know, it's possible, especially with the larger agencies, to get somebody else to do it who doesn't know who the who the suspect is. And, you know, there is a growing development of computerized testing where you can actually get the computer to construct a lineup. For example, it would be like a photo lineup, pick the fillers, present the people without a human being even being in the room. I can certainly see how that could be beneficial. So how did you get interested in researching memory to begin with? Oh, gee, well, that goes way back to graduate school. When I was, you know, earning my PhD, I worked on a study of memory with another, with a professor. And this was a fairly theoretical kind of memory work. And after I got my PhD, I thought, you know, I really would like to do some work that has more obvious practical application. And I knew something about memory because I'd been working on some memory problems, but I've always been interested in the legal system. Well, what could I, maybe I could combine that and then decided to do something on the memory of witnesses to crimes and accidents and other legally relevant events. So I, I began to design some studies and do 
experimental work on the memory of witnesses. And that publication about that work led to the involvement in legal cases. And I've certainly listened to several of your talks and read a lot of your studies. And I know that you've you've really paid a price, it seems like, for some your work in terms of criticism and just people really going after you. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, there have been some pretty unpleasant things that have happened. I'm not sure what you came across, but there, it's all splattered across the Internet, a lot of it. I mean, in, in an earlier period when I was testifying, for example, in maybe armed robbery cases or murder cases, usually on behalf of the defense in a criminal case, well, some prosecutors, you know, could get irritated that, you know, they're not particularly happy often with people who are defense expert witnesses. And, you know, but the the kinds of arguments and discussions back then were mild compared to what would happen later when the type of memory, you know, bizarre memory claims that I would see in court cases became even more extreme. When you started to see these people who, for example, would go into therapy with one kind of problem. Maybe they were depressed or had an eating disorder. And they'd come out of this therapy believing that they had been raped for 10 years in their childhood, you know, by their father or forced into satanic rituals and forced to kill animals and, you know, sacrifice babies. These kind of very bizarre Typically, uncorroborated um, memories were being introduced into court cases. And then people got really mad at the idea of somebody challenging the authenticity of these memories. So I did face a lot of, you know, oh, death threats for a while and, uh, you know, efforts to get me fired from my university position and eventually a lawsuit uh, that I had to defend. It was, there were some pretty unpleasant things. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. So tell me about your involvement in the McMartin preschool molestation case. Now, that's going way back to the 80s when Ray Bucky was uh, arrested, 1983. I actually wasn't involved in the first trial. The first trial resulted in acquittals on all counts, except those involving three children where the jury was a hung jury. Then there was a second trial and Ray Bucky again had to stand trial, and I was a consultant in that case, but ended up, you know, the judge ended up not allowing either the prosecution to have their expert or the defense to have their experts, so I didn't actually testify, but I got to, you know, I got to be very, very familiar with a lot of those records and some of the extreme practices that whip these children into having these bizarre, uncorroborated uh, memories. And what was going on, in your opinion, around this time? And I do want to talk about the memory wars of the 1990s, which you alluded to a minute ago. But like in the McMartin preschool case, I can remember just the incredible media exposure. And it was just uh, all over everywhere, talking about this preschool and the, the organized abuse of these children and so forth. Right. And supposedly these little kids were taken off in tunnels and airplanes and, uh, you know, all kinds of bizarre things supposedly happened to them. Parents never noticed anything. I believe that it was all whipped into shape by the suggestive questioning 
of a few parents and some professional interviewers, or maybe I shouldn't call them professional, but except that they were doing that for a living. So let's kind of move a little bit forward to the 1990s when we began hearing about satanic ritual abuse and cult ritual abuse. And there were a lot of people coming forward with these memories that you've talked about that they didn't know about allegedly before they went into therapy and they get into therapy for something else. And all of a sudden they're talking about all these horrific experiences. What do you think this was all about? I'll tell you how I, you know, I first, I get a phone call. This is my first like inkling of awareness of, of what was going on. I got a phone call from a criminal defense attorney. His name is Doug Horngrad. He said, you know, can I talk to you? I've, I've got this murder case. And he said, I used to be a public defender, which to me meant he had a lot of trial experience. He said, I'm now in private practice. I've done a lot of murder cases. I've never had a case like this. My client is George Franklin. And he's accused of murdering a little girl 20 years ago. And the only evidence against him is the testimony of his daughter, who claims that she recovered, repressed her memory for 20 years of witnessing this murder. And now the memory is back. And so she calls the, you know, the police and the police get all excited and they decide to prosecute George Franklin for this murder based on Nothing other than this claim of repressed memory and then the recovery of this. Uh, By the way, the daughter also claimed that she recovered other murder memories and that she recovered years of sexual abuse committed upon her by her father and by others whom she said joined in to assault her. Doug Horngrad, the lawyer, said, what do you know about this idea of repression? I said, well, you know, I've been studying memory for quite some time. I've worked on lots of cases, but... It's kind of a hand-me-down Freudian idea. I, to be honest, I don't know what the evidence is. And then I started to look and see, and there is no credible scientific support for the idea that you can be brutalized for years, banish this into the unconscious in the way that was being claimed here, and then reliably recover this all. There just wasn't. But despite the lack of evidence, the daughter gave persuasive testimony. It was bolstered by a psychiatrist who essentially said, and I believe every word of her story, and Franklin was convicted. He became virtually the first American to be convicted of murder based on nothing other than this claim of repressed memory. So I was pretty shocked and, you know, I I thought that might be the end of my involvement with repression, but it was just the beginning because we began to see occasionally a few other murder memories, but mostly now people who were coming up with stories, usually after therapy, of years of sexual brutalization committed upon them and they were suing their their parents and their former neighbors and their other relatives and their dentists and doctors and others who they claimed committed these crimes that they had repressed in their memory. We're going to take just a quick break and come back. And I do want to spend some more time talking about this idea of repressed memories, false memories, how they can be created. So please stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. I'm your host, Dr. Joni Johnston on A Thread of Evidence. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 talk radio. 
on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field, and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police at Amazon.com. The question I always get asked is, where do I get the energy from? Well, keeping up with Malcolm Out Loud is no easy task, friends, even for Malcolm. Well, you may know that I've personally been taking Healthy Cell for some time now. Well, the great news is Healthy Cell has a new type of natural supplement called the Nutrition Gel. So no more hard-to-swallow pills. Uh, the good taste in gel can be mixed into smoothies, yogurt, or water. These gels provide maximum absorption of essential nutrients, and it's healthy for our gut not abrasive like pills can be. You know, it's time for all of us to go pill-free. And you can try it with a free two-day supply. Just cover $2.95 shipping, and the company Healthy Cell will cover the cost of the product. Go to HealthyCell.com forward slash out loud, or simply click the Healthy Cell logo at the top of AmericaOutloud.com. Welcome back to A Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. We're listening to our fascinating guest today, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. We were talking about the 1990s and her experience in consulting and testifying on some cases of allegedly repressed memories and the controversy around that. And I have to tell you, Dr. Loftus, I had a client during this period of time and she came in to see me and she relayed some of these same stories. And I didn't know what to make of it because there absolutely was no evidence and she did not present any physical evidence. And she seemed, in fact, somewhat puzzled that there wasn't any physical evidence. And my conclusion at some point was that I couldn't really believe that this happened because there was no evidence, but I was clearly convinced that she believed it. Well, uh no, that's fascinating. And, and I, too, think that most of these thousands and thousands of people who came forward with these claims of a repressed memory and then the return of the repressed seem to really believe in what they're saying. And, you know, I often get people saying to me, why would somebody want to believe something so awful as, you know, their father raped them for 10 years if it didn't happen? Why would anyone want to? And you know, my answer to that is if there's a cost to it, which there often is because the families get destroyed, they're estranged, you know, a lot of problems in life, there must be a really big benefit what is the benefit? And these patients are, you know, getting attention, they're getting sympathy and empathy, they're getting an explanation for their problems when they haven't had an explanation. And, you know, I think these are part of the benefits that, and they're in the hands of a therapist who is a a true believer in all this. So what kind of 
communication or techniques did you uncover in your work that these therapists were engaging in that was most likely to lead to some of these kind of, quote, repressed memories surfacing? Okay, well, I'll I'll give you a few examples. So, Joni, you're my patient, and, you know, you say you're depressed and you've got an eating disorder, and, uh, you know, almost every one of the patients I've had with those symptoms was sexually abused as a child. I wonder if anything like that happened to you. And maybe you, Joni, say, no, I didn't really have that experience. Well, you know, many people do, but they repress their memories. So why don't we try a little guided imagination exercises to see if we can dig out possibly repressed memories, because that's what you're going to need to do to heal yourself and cure yourself of these problems. And then maybe I take you through, close your eyes and try to imagine who might have abused you and where might it have happened and when might it have happened. Well, we as psychologists would later prove that these kinds of guided imagination exercises can make people believe things happened that didn't. Then there's sexualized dream interpretation where the therapists are taking the dream material and interpreting it as evidence of a a history of trauma of some sort. Then there's sometimes hypnosis that gets used. And with highly hypnotizable people, they're even more suggestible. You sometimes put people in group therapy, which can often be a comfort for people to share a common experience that they've had. It can be comforting. But you put somebody in a group and they're hearing who doesn't have memories and they're hearing stories of people, you know, coming up with these detailed stories. That's another way that ideas and and memories have been created in the minds of unsuspecting patients. Now, are certain personalities, certain backgrounds more susceptible? Because I have to tell you, I'm sitting here thinking, and I think a lot of people listening might be thinking the same way. I'm thinking... I just don't think I'd ever believe that. I mean, I think if a therapist said that to me over and over again, I would kind of be like, no, I don't know. I don't remember any of that. So, who, well, I, some, I and some people do resist the suggestion that they haven't been studied very much. I call them the resistors, but many highly functioning people have false, fallen sway to this kind of suggestive influence and have come up with these kinds of stories that that start to feel like memories. It can happen to intelligent people, even though even though there is some evidence that if you score high on standard tests of intelligence, you're somewhat less susceptible to suggestive interviewing and suggestive interventions. It can happen somewhat more to people who have who commonly can't remember whether, for example, they did something or just thought about doing that thing. I have that with my garage door. You know, I have to go, I can't remember whether I closed it. So I have to go back and check and it's always closed. But if you're, if you have self-reported lapses in memory and attention, you're somewhat more susceptible. But I've got to say that some of the most intelligent, educated, experienced people in our society have developed false memories and sometimes gotten, you know, caught with them and, and, and badly embarrassed. So how does a person protect him or herself from falling prey to suggestions that are inaccurate? You know, we have shown that you can warn people. Somebody may try to contaminate you, be on the lookout. And people can use that warning and they can fend off these. I'm talking about experimental studies that have demonstrated the power of warnings, but it's a short-term power. 
And we are not walking around, you know, the, our world with these warnings at the forefront of our consciousness where they could maybe protect us. But, you know, if it is a critical situation, you can try to remind yourself of the malleability of memory as just the nature of how memory works and maybe use that information to fend off some kind of intrusion. I mean, I wonder in an eyewitness situation if it would be helpful to write down immediately afterwards everything you remember in as much that detail is, as possible. Yes. that Well, that is, you know, some places or establishments where there's a kind of a high risk for crime, like a bank, or bank robbery kind of thing, sometimes they are instructed before anybody talks to you, before you overhear any conversations, before the police even get here, write out everything you can remember. And to some extent, that, that is good because you're recounting the story as quickly as possible and protecting it perhaps a little bit from further contamination. But it doesn't sound like it's foolproof. No, even even when you know, even when you rehearse something, and then time goes by, your memory fades a little, and you can be contaminated again. <laughs> That's kind of scary in a way. Yeah, it is. But I think it's better to recognize that this is a, a feature of human beings, and to then try to figure out what you know, what you can do about it. I mean, so I'll I'll give you one example of of what you can do about it. One kind of, some memory distortions happen spontaneously. Um, People remember their grades were better than they really were, or they gave more to charity, or their kids walked and talked at an earlier age, or they contributed more to a joint project than they actually did. Um, These are kind of self-induced memory distortions that are not brought about by external suggestion. And if you recognize this about memory, then you can make use of this information. So if I'm feeling, if I've been working on a joint project and I'm feeling a little like I've done more than my fair share and my partner hasn't, then I can step back and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe I'm, maybe I'm succumbing to this over-exaggeration of my own contribution. And I can be a little more forgiving of that partner. When I hear somebody say something that is wrong and, you know, I don't immediately assume it's a, it's a big fat lie. They could honestly have developed a false memory. And I think it's a more generous, kinder way to feel about people. Definitely. Is it possible to tell the difference between a true memory and a false memory? Well, that's a question I get asked a lot when I'm giving talks about this. And, you know, we've answered this experimentally. For example, one of my students worked on the question of whether maybe true memories are emotional than false memories. But what she showed in her dissertation work is that false memories can be experienced with a great deal of emotion. Emotion is no guarantee that you're dealing with an authentic memory, despite the fact that some people use emotion as a cue for themselves that this must be true. Then we've done neuroimaging studies. Can the, can the brain, if you put somebody in a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, can the brain or neural signals look different for true memories and false memories? And basically, they, they don't really. The false memories look very much like true ones. So, you know, we, we have looked to see if we can find features that might, that might help us reliably discriminate whether, uh, you know, a story is authentic or a product of some other process. And basically, you need independent corroboration to know for sure. 
You know, what's really difficult about that, you're saying, okay, it's not the level of detail. It's not the amount of emotion. It's not some of the the way the person tells the story per se. But then you have situations, rape cases, sexual assault cases, where there may not be corroborating evidence. So how do you sort through that? Yes. Well, that's a very big problem. I, I mean, the... Sometimes, you know, we're not going to get rid of human memory in the legal system because, first of all, there's some situations where there aren't a lot of problems and, and the memory, you know, you know, maybe is pretty reliable. So, for example, I'll just give you one example that's a little less sensitive than the rape situation. The lawyer says, hey, my client's accused of armed robbery. Well, tell me a little bit about what happened. Well, suppose the victim says that the two of them were talking for an hour, out, you know, outside of a restaurant. And then after an hour, my guy pulls out a gun and, and takes his wallet. They're the same race, so you don't have a cross-racial identification. The victim claims that the next day, He saw the guy, the perpetrator on the street and called the police and the police came and arrested the guy. It's a short passage of time. There's no improper police procedure. It's a same race situation. There was a long, long exposure to the perpetrator, particularly a long period where there was no particular stress. And I would usually will just say to a lawyer, I'm not sure, you know, a memory expert can help you here. You got a lot of, you know, factors that sort of way in favor of of this memory being accurate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I wonder, this just kind of occurred to me as we were talking, because if you're looking for corroborating evidence, I mean, the courts have been very clear for the most part about allowing previous acts to kind of come in, because understandably, there's the whole sense of, hey, a person is innocent until proven guilty. And if this person was convicted of three armed robberies in the past, that might sway a jury influence. But on the flip side of that, wouldn't that be corroborating evidence, at least circumstantial evidence to support what somebody was saying? You know, that's, uh, well, we could probably have a long discussion about the practice of bringing in prior accusations, maybe that were never adjudicated, where some other person says, five years ago, he did something like this to me. That's going on a lot. And it's a it's a kind of a heavily disputed practice. And, you know, I think you're going to have to make sure that that five-year-old accusation isn't a product of suggestion too. So you're going to have to investigate that one thoroughly and, and maybe have another little mini trial over this, uh, this pattern and practice accusation. Well, that is an excellent point. If there is a prior conviction, you know, and and it has been adjudicated, it's going to be very damaging for a defendant, for sure. And, you know, that's why those cases where that evidence could come in are so contentious. Understandably so. So we're going to take another break. One of the things that's become clear about our discussion so far is this is very, very complicated. And there are a lot of competing interest involved in these legal cases. And it's difficult to sort through. And really memory, which is something we all kind of count on as being solid, is not as solid as perhaps we think that it is. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a few minutes and finish up our conversation with Dr. Loftus on threat of evidence. I'm Dr. Ron Martinelli. And I'm Linda Martinelli. As former law enforcement officers, we know that your life and the lives of those you love and work with can change in an instant when you encounter an active shooter. 
Unfortunately, in today's world of uncertainty, encountering an armed active shooter can have deadly consequences. That's why the key to survival is training and preparedness. And that's why we want to invite our listeners to seriously consider taking our response to active shooter training course. Violence can happen to you anytime and anywhere and when you least expect it. Having a response and survival plan and engaging it can be the difference between life and death for you or a family member. Our response to active shooter courses are customized for the corporate, school, church, restaurant, and small business environment at a reasonable budget that fits your needs. So don't put this life-saving training off because you don't think it will ever happen to you. We call those people victims. Our response to active shooter instructors are all nationally renowned tactical law enforcement experts who will guide you through the life-saving protocols you'll need to survive an active shooter event. So be a victor, not a victim. Go to responsetoactiveshooter.com to learn more today. Remember, that's all one word, responsetoactiveshooter.com, and be safe out there. Spreading the outloud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, and we are having a fascinating conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Loftus, who is talking about memory, eyewitness testimony, and the whole issue of false versus real memories and repressed memories, whether that's real or not. And we were just talking about looking for corroborating evidence in some of these cases. So I have often, as others have said, that in order to reliably know whether you are dealing with an authentic memory or one that's a product of some other process, imagination, suggestion, you know, some other process, that you need independent corroboration. And people say, well, well, what's independent corroboration? And I would often say, well, sometimes they're photographs, actually. People, for example, have been found with photographs of child porn or or whatever. Sometimes they photograph parts of the crime, videos. I mean, this would be an example of corroboration. But what's happened now with the sophisticated things you can do with Photoshop and creating a past through Photoshop that did not exist, or with deep fakes where you can use this computer technology to make it look like somebody is saying or doing something that's completely created through the computer technology. Uh, now we've got an even more difficult job in figuring out what what's going to count as corroboration. We are truly in a transitional age, it seems like, with technology. And on the one hand, we do have the possibility for misinformation like never before. And at the same time, thank goodness we have DNA evidence or analysis that has made some huge strides as well. I know well, you Oh, absolutely. The, especially for the some 350 or so people who in the Innocence Project, uh, got freed of after being convicted and spending, you know, sometimes decades in prison. Thank goodness for DNA. 
Now, were you involved in any of those cases? I have been involved in DNA exoneration cases, yes. And do you see a pattern in looking at those convictions? Well, when these cases have been analyzed, the most common cause of wrongful convictions is faulty human memory, playing a role in more than 70% of the cases. So there are a lot of reasons for wrongful convictions. People falsely confess, there's a police misconduct, they're planting of evidence, they're lying witnesses, perjury. There's all kinds of causes of wrongful convictions, but the most common one in that database is faulty memory. That's how I like to motivate my students to want to learn about memory. That would do it. (laughs) Yeah. So when you say faulty memory, does that have anything to do with false confessions? Well, false confessions are their own kind of category. And there are experts in false confessions who are really the experts. I I have done only a tiny, tiny bit of work on false confessions. But the experts in false confessions will tell you that there's several reasons why people falsely confess. You know, one is it's a really high publicity case and they, they may be a little mentally off, but they'll confess because they want to be involved in, you know, that's how 200 people end up confessing to kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. Then there are people who confess because they, they don't really believe they did it, but they think it's the better way out of a very unpleasant situation. If you'll just confess to accidentally shaking the baby, then we won't assume you did it deliberately. And if you don't confess to this accidental shaking, then you're going to jail and you'll never see your other kids again. So they may confess because they think that it's the better way out of a terrible situation. And a, a small category of these people, though, really start to believe they did it through all the coercion and suggestion of those interviews. And to that extent, that subgroup is kind of similar to the kind of work I do, where people come to really believe that they had experiences that they didn't have. And that, I would imagine, is from getting a lot of misinformation as part of the interrogation process, primarily? Right. And, and you know, the police are allowed to lie to people to get a confession. You can, you can tell somebody, oh, your fingerprints were found at the scene. Or an eyewitness saw you when it's completely made up. And people, you know, when they, an authority figure tells them your fingerprints were at the scene and somebody saw you, or you flunked the polygraph when you didn't really... They start to think, maybe I did it. Was I drinking? Did I black out? And they can start to believe they did it. Now, we talked a little bit ago about the 90s and all of the sexual abuse allegations that came out and that people were suing their parents. And then we also touched on the fact that at some point, the tide kind of turned and there were people who began suing therapists for the damage they'd done to themselves, to their families. And I'm wondering, so what happened to these false memories? I remember those cases. They were tractor cases. There were, you know, hundreds of people who went into therapy with one problem, ended up through the psychotherapeutic process, believing that they were victims of these horrendous acts. Maybe they challenged their family members, wrecked the families, maybe even got their family member prosecuted. At some point, they started to realize their memories were false. How does that happen? As somebody who's been studying memory for so many decades, I found that fascinating. How does it happen that somebody starts 
to realize their memory is false. And one of the things that sometimes happens is their health insurance ran out. So they were no longer able to go see the therapist who was propping up this false memory. Or they would they would sometimes see somebody talking about their story, you know, on TV and start to realize that their therapist had done some of the th- same things to them as this person who they were hearing was recounting. In any event, hundreds of them sued their former therapists. There were there were a number of, of huge jury verdicts and settlements, particularly in the mid-1990s. And this really woke up the mental health community to the idea that therapists are going to be at risk if they engage in these questionable practices. So the commonalities, what I'm hearing you say, is maybe either watching something on TV, being exposed to some of the same techniques through somebody else talking, or just time being removed from this kind of influence that was primarily suggesting either consciously or unconsciously that these things had happened? Those are some of the things that would occur in some of these retractor cases, yes. Interesting. So is there anything that we could do? To kind of proactively to, and now we talked about preventing or the lack of ability that we have to do that, but what about helping somebody see the light? Oh, I just, you know, I think that just, again, usually when I've written papers wanting to sort of give suggestions or advice to mental health professionals, I will co-author those papers with a mental health professional. So, that, you know, basically I'm there with somebody who's been in the trenches with sexually abused patients and understands it from a clinical perspective. But, you know, I think that one thing that we can all kind of agree on is that highly suggestive tactics that lead people to one and only one explanation for their problems when there may be many explanations for depression or an eating disorder or generalized anxiety or whatever it is the patient is experiencing that brings them to the therapy in the first place. And the real problem with these past therapists, the questionable therapists, in their minds, there was one and only one explanation. So I think these therapists need to, you know, be open to the many, many possibilities for what might be going on. I completely agree with that. And I tell you, I'm a big proponent for helping mental health consumers really know how to evaluate their therapy and to understand when it's helping them and when it's not and when it's time to, you know, find another therapist. Because I think there's a lack of information. And when somebody goes into therapy, they're vulnerable. Oh, of course, almost by definition. Exactly. Yeah. I want to switch gears just for a minute because I came across a term that you used in one of your talks that I thought was really interesting called memory blindness. I wanted to get you to explain that to our audience. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's a recent concept that I and my, my graduate students have been writing about. So in a typical misinformation study, if I were interviewing you, Joni, and you saw some crime, for example, and I were to say to you, you know, Mrs. Jones said the light was red when the accident happened. Uh, what do you remember? When maybe that wasn't true, that would be an example of me conveying misinformation to you that could affect your memory. In a memory blindness situation, what you're saying to the individual is, earlier you told me X, 
you told me the light was red when I talked to you last week, when maybe that's not what the person said. So it's a form of misinformation, but basically you're you're telling people that they told you something earlier that they didn't really say. What happens to people when this happens to them? Do they even detect it? Do they stop you and say, wait a minute, I never said that? Well, I can tell you in these studies, people often fail to detect that that's not what they said, and then they will shift their memory in the direction of this particular kind of misinformation. So that's what that's what this memory blindness concept is all about. So give me an ex- a specific example. Okay, well, we like, I mean, one thing might be a police officer writes out a statement after talking to a witness and writes, not the person writing it, but the police officer writes it out and says, okay, I've just, I've written what you told me. And I just like you to look it over and then sign it at the bottom. Well, what if there are errors in there? Are people going to spot them and, and say, no, wait a minute, I never told you this. This memory blindness problem suggests that many times in that kind of circumstance, people might not spot that there's an error, that they're being told they said something that they didn't really say. And then I think there are other kind of practical situations that don't have so much to do with the forensic world where I think this memory blindness may play a role. So for example, fact-checking. If you are interviewed by a magazine or somebody might call you up and say, I'm a fact checker. I want to make sure that uh, we got what you told our journalists. We have it correct. The journalist says that you said A, B, and C. What if some of that is wrong? Is the person being interviewed going to be able to say, wait a minute, I never said that? Oftentimes, they're going to fail to detect that's not what they said. Now, how do you tease out whether they know it was incorrect and they're just being polite or compliant or whatever? And they actually are starting to remember it differently. Well, that is part of the trickiness. I mean, and so we have, we look for any sign of concurrent detection. When you're feeding them back, do they stop you right there and say, wait a minute, no, that's wrong. Or do they do anything to indicate at the time they're getting the misinformation that it's not right? That's concurrent detection. But then we come back to people at the end of the study and we say, look, Was there anything strange at any time during this? And we do a deep probe to see if we if we can get them to express any awareness that they were fed some wrong information. These are just a few of the ways. Now, how do we know that? How do we know when somebody is telling us something, they really believe it? That's a whole different question. We have lots of other ways of convincing ourselves that they do really believe it. A week later, when they go into a completely different study, will they tell somebody else that this is their memory, a completely different person? That's kind of evidence that they may really believe it. They're not just telling it back to you. They're willing to tell some third party that this is what they remember. And so, yeah, we worry about these issues and we worry about, you know, in our studies, are we dealing with someone who truly has a memory distortion or are we dealing with someone who's just claiming something that they don't believe in? And we've spent a lot of time thinking about how to disentangle those two. And so when you go back and this third person talks to this person a week later, do they say, hey, this wasn't really true, but I just went along with it? Or do they? No, no. They say this is my memory. So their memory actually changes. Exactly. Exactly. 
You know, you know the, or, you know, if you planted a false memory that they got sick eating a particular food a month later, you can give them a chance to eat the food and they don't eat as much of it. What's that about? I mean, they may re- they must have really kind of established and believe in that memory. So it actually shaped their beha- their choices in other areas. It, exactly. It has consequences, as we put it. You know, one of the things that occurred to me, and this is a little bit of a twist on what you're talking about, but I think it could relate, is having worked with so many children who were sexually abused that had been validated, and it was in the courts, and there were, some of the parents were actually in prison. But one of the things that I did come across way more often than I would have liked to is when a child did tell somebody, a parent, oftentimes the non-abusing parent would deny that or dismiss that or say, you're making this up, or you, it didn't really happen this way. And I'm wondering if this whole idea of memory blindness could apply in this case, whether a child who's hearing these things, their memory might actually change as a result of it. Well, I think you could certainly see why for uh, the non-abusing partner in a situation, you know, they would, many of them wouldn't, don't want to believe this is true and may express that disbelief to a child who really was abused. That's a sad situation. And it is possible that that might have some effect on the child's memory. We have tried to weaken memories or take memories away. It's a little harder than adding things to people's memories. Interesting. So you can, it's easier to add stuff than take things away, which kind of makes sense. I mean, I can take something away by substituting something else. If I make you believe the light was red instead of green, I've substituted something else for the true light color. But just to get people to to remember that something didn't happen is a little harder. So maybe the greater risk in that situation would be not that the child denies it happened or forgets, quote, forgets it happens, but maybe changes the details or makes it less severe or something like that would be more of a risk, I would think. Yes, that could happen. Or, I mean, and, and, you know, it might, I just don't know this, but such a scenario might, you know, create sadness and have other problems for the child. Well, certainly I've come to believe, and we're a little bit off the topic of memory, but I certainly found that the way a parent responded to sexual abuse of a child, I thought was either almost as healing as the abuse was devastating or was as devastating as the initial abuse, depending upon how that non-abusing parent responded. So I think that's a a kind of a separate topic, but I do think that that can have a, you know, a huge impact on the future kind of mental health of that child. But I did just was wondering, like I said, when we were talking, I came across this idea of memory blindness. If you have a parent or an authority figure who's I guess, minimizing perhaps what happened or... Yeah, now I wouldn't use the, the, the term memory blindness the way we were using it in this particular line of experimental work is, I see why you're making that connection, but this is sort of telling people, you told me Y last week when really they had said X. So, and, but what you're talking about is just disbelieving the story. And I, I mean, I think that's a little different. It, or, it, or it's minimize. potentially a memory distorting activity, but a little different from the, the usual way, we, what we usually mean when we talk about memory blindness. I can certainly see that. Well, we're almost at the end of our interview, but I did want to ask you what kinds, 
because we have attorneys who listen to this show, we have law enforcement. What kinds of cases do you think you're most useful or most suited for? I, I think when memory is a critical issue, certainly in these delayed memory cases where people are bringing up memories of things that happened a long time ago, you need, you know, you need to critically examine the uh, potential sources of suggestion. Is there some other explanation for what the person is saying? It may have happened, but it may not have happened, and, and it may be exaggerated or created through suggestion. So it's, it, there are lots of cases where memory is an issue. I mean, I, we've talked a little bit about the, you know, robberies and identifying as that the person, delayed repressed memory sex abuse cases. Did the satanic ritual abuse really happen? But, you know, memory can be critical in lots of other cases. Medical malpractice cases where there's a dispute between what the doctor told the patient and what the patient heard. Securities fraud cases where there's a dispute between what the broker told the customer and what the customer heard. There can be lots of memory issues in lots of different cases. Well, it sure sounds like it. And I will have to say that we are very happy we have you (laughs) to help the legal legal profession out and appreciate so much again you coming on today and sharing some really interesting information with us. We'll have you. Oh, great. We'll have your information on contact information on the website and hope to have you on again sometime in the future. In the meantime, thanks again for listening to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Dr. Ron Martinelli should be on next week. And thanks again for watching Thread of Evidence with America Out Loud. <laughs>